There's a growing movement again to ban books in the United States. Who's behind it this time? We're going to talk about it on today's The Citizen Stewart Show. All right, friends, we are back again. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America. As we tell you every week, we dive deep into the top headlines and the stories that aren't being covered elsewhere. And if they are being covered elsewhere, they're certainly not being covered the way that we cover them. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, also the CEO of Brightbeam, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunities for kids in the United States. We want justice for every single child in America, and we know that we can make it happened. My co-host, Ravi Gupta, former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Also a good guy to talk about how we're going to make sure that every kid gets educational justice, because sometimes it's more than just educational policy. Sometimes it's politics. Sometimes it's democracy. Sometimes it's electing the right people to do the right things. And oftentimes it's passing policies that go beyond just the traditional charter school stuff or testing or whatever. It's like a lot of other policies, but we're going to get into that a little bit today uh, in one of our two topics that we're going to talk about. But before (laughs) we do, I want to share with folks something from the mailbag. Mailbag, we did get email again this week. Uh, One email that we got was reminding me to do a good job of researching people's names. So in our last episode, there was a reporter from Chalkbeat who I butchered her name and got it wrong. I have a problem with this often. So it's not it's not a new problem for me. Um, but there was a listener who called it out. I'm happy to be called out on anything. Keep the email coming. Keep the feedback coming. Happy to accept it. I had a former boss who once said to me, when someone gives you a piece of feedback, the only thing you should ever say is thank you. I'm not very good about taking that advice, but at least I can mention to you that it was said to me once. I appreciate that. Well, we you weren't the a- only one called out, Chris. I was called out by another one of our uh, emailers. Read this for our audience. Yeah. So we got this email also regarding White Lotus. It says, Dear Chris, I don't always agree with your positions. Why do people always say this about me? First of all, first of all, is there anybody who you agree with all of their positions? I feel like I'm the one guy on planet Earth where everybody has to always start their like my pronouns should be don't always agree with his opinion. I don't know what it what what it is, but anyways, she says, I don't always agree with your position, but I always learn something and respect your thoughtful point of view. Thank you so much for that. Uh don't be fooled by Ravi. There are so <laughs> many better TV shows than White Lotus. But HBO still carries a cachet that gives its shows more cred than they deserve. Go watch Welcome to Chippendales instead. Much more enjoyable and thought-provoking. Have a great holiday, Deborah. Deborah, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate more than anything else the caution to take Ravi's opinion uh, wholeheartedly. Well, I my back gets up when I read an email like that. Don't be fooled by Ravi. I immediately get my back up thinking it's like some kind of education foe from back in the day emailing and, you know, attacking me. And then I read the rest and I'm like, oh, this is a white lotus hit. Look, I'm going to let this pitch go by. Yeah. And you know what? Deborah, you know, for the record, I watched one episode of the new White Lotus and could not get into it. I mentioned that last week. Just couldn't do it. And Ravi, like, oh, no, it gets better. It gets better. And really, I don't I'm not so sure about that. But I am going to watch your recommendation. I didn't think I was going to watch it because I was like, Chippendales, blah, blah. And then I saw something in the the line about there being a murder involved with it. And I said, oh, okay, now this is better now. Yeah. When it was just going to be about, I thought it was going to be like a magic mic type of thing, right? Well, I'm not going to touch this one. 
But thank you for the feedback. Deborah, is it? Thank you for the feedback, Deborah. He takes the feedback and he will do better. Another thing, another yeah. piece of feedback that we got from the last show, of course, we talked about a fairly explosive thing when we talked about TFA. And that can just be explosive no matter how you slice it. If you talk about TFA from the right or the left, there could be lots of things. That and that's come up. Teach for America just, for our new listeners. We're talking about Teach for America. Teach for America. Let me let me remind folks, Teach for America, because we use a lot of acronyms in this world. Anyways, the feedback that I got was from very high in TFA, and it was just as I would have suspected. The story is a lot more complicated than we made it back then. The pandemic was very hard on TFA. They came through it with flying colors. They have a lot more business than they had before because they're now expanding their business to be beyond just recruiting teachers and placing teachers. They're also doing a lot of other things that have come out of their years of experience to help districts with training their teaching staff, delivering curriculum across state lines. I'm not going to go into everything because I have a hit list of things that might be good for a future show. But suffice it to say, within TFA, as I would expect from a, you know, hundreds or tens of millions of dollar organization, uh, there's a lot of work going on and a lot of things that are happening. One of the big changes in TFA is that they used to be very decentralized. And that being decentralized caused a lot of inefficiencies and a lot of opportunity for there to be locals that would do things that were not good for the mothership or for the whole of the organization. I think one of which we talked about a little bit last week on the show. And they are not that decentralized anymore. They have centralized more of the power and the the kind of the, the programmatic thinking internally so that they don't have that problem as much as they used to have. They are also dealing with something we've talked about on this show before, which is TFA is led by a Gen Xer like me, the greatest generation of all. But then they also have millennials and they have Gen Zers and they will soon be working with Gen Alpha as an organization goes. I can't, I will never be envious of that challenge. Not for, uh, (laughs) that's going to be the most immense human capital challenge for any learning organization anywhere. Go ahead, Ravi. I see you chomping at the bit. I know you want to like jump in on the feedback. The only thing you could ask of people is what we ask of ourselves, which is to get better every single day. And so I appreciate whoever it is who who's sending word from on high for you to to speak on this podcast. Uh, I would also want to thank not one but two teachers reached out to me who are at the training I described. <laughs> so <laughs> and I encourage both of them to send in voicemails on it. But look, I'm not looking to kick TFA when they're down. I want to reiterate what I said at the end of that, which is there are a lot of great people working at Teach for America. Some of my favorite people on this planet have have come through the Teach for America system. I employed a lot of their people. And so I spoke out of a sense of real passion for the the power and promise of Teach for America. And so I really do hope that things are heading in the right direction over there. And we're, we're productive here. Look, we don't have any permanent friends or enemies here, right? And, and that's for anybody listening from Teach for America is like, look, I don't have any grudge against Teach for America. I want you to succeed. And we have an open invitation to anybody over there who wants to come on this podcast anytime to talk about the work that they're doing. Well, to maintain my status as the single TFA alum who's never taught in the core. Oh my God. Oh, I have to actually say good things about TFA. So yeah, no, you're, I, 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 it's, it hasn't gone unnoticed that you've delivered their talking points perfectly on this podcast. I don't know what's wrong with you guys. TFA, the idea that you would get young, smart people involved in teaching 
uh, and learning in the area, in the part of their life where they could might possibly be the brightest that they're going to be and send them to places that are in desperate need of new blood. Uh, I don't know what could be so wrong about that. I will say this much. It did make me reflect after our show, though. You know that something is unique when it's a, it's accosted by all sides. The right wing comes after them for being too woke and too militant. The left wing comes after them for being too neoliberal and corporate and corporatist. And those two complaints about them still exist in total together to the point where the Diane Ravitch people on the left and the heritage people on the right agree with each other and they could have a picnic together and find perfect common ground on how bad they think TFA is. And that tells me you're doing something right. Well, you said common ground. It reminds me of the common core coalition, right? Like the mm. left and right became so extreme on the common core stuff that they both started sounding like each other and allying with each other against the common core standards. Isn't it crazy how that does? Like, you know, that that fits into our next story, though. So, yeah. So transition us to this, our first thing today about what makes us mad. And in it, I just want to forecast in it. I'm going to come back to the point that Ravi just made about the Common Core, because I think it's embedded in this this issue. It's funny because I, I have a point to make about the Common Core in a later segment. But OK, th- we're responding to an article from The New York Times, December 12th, titled A Fast Growing Network of Conservative Groups is Fueling a Surge in Book Bans. And this is an article by Elizabeth Harris and Alexandra Alter. And they profile just a rising movement to ban books. And I want to underline the fact that they're talking about banning books, but this is not what it's really about. It's about censorship writ large and, and a, and a in an effort to push a certain kind of narrative about America and exclude certain voices within our schools. This is a political movement, right? Because you may be listening saying, well, books, who gives a shit about books anymore? Kids aren't even going to the libraries anymore. But this is about so much more than books. Chris, where should we start on this one? Because there's really so many interesting anecdotes and s- sets of data within this article. Well, first of all, I feel like a crazy person that we have to make a big deal out of something that is such a big deal. It's almost like people are not paying attention. I feel like this would have happened five years ago or 10 years ago. It would have been every night on the news that there was this wave of kind of uh, laws being passed in states to drastically limit, not change or improve, but limit what can be read by young people, what could be taught in schools. And in one state, Florida, not just what could be uh, read or what could be taught in classrooms, but what can be used for training in private businesses even. In Florida, they regulate now, you can't have any so-called woke ideology as a corporation. So AT&T can't do diversity training. And Disney, yeah, they can't do diversity training in the way that they used to. Also, you know, that this idea that that you have corporate interest involved in this too, though. In Texas, one of the places that's highlighted in the article for there being new restrictions on reading and you know books being banned and everything, they had a school board that was taken over by a slate of right-wing school board members that were sponsored by a cellular company, Patriot Mobile. Yeah, a Christian cellular company. A Christian cellular network. I mean, this is like fitting right in with the Trump NFT cards, right? Like it's this weird Mm -hmm. confluence of like the MyPillow guy and Christianity 
and right-wing politics. It's just so bizarre to me that this hasn't become an ongoing SNL skit, right? So Patriot Mobile is a mobile company that uses its profits specifically to turn over school boards and to and specifically in Texas. And they did it. And what happens right after you get elected is you start political theater. You start doing things like firing superintendents, uh, firing principals for offenses against things like CRT, uh, for the listening population, uh, critical race theory, which is a legal concept from a legal critical theory that is taught at the higher ed level, but has been conflated to mean anything the right wing doesn't like. Um, and it can be a crime in these states to teach anything the right wing doesn't like, right? So I, I often wonder where's the left wing parents too, like, you know, because they go to schools too and they pay taxes too. I mean, well, I would- yeah, let's get to that because this is a political story, if I've ever seen one, about political organizing. Now, this effort, to turn over the school board immediately resulted in the removal of at least 20 books from the district schools, including Toni Morrison's The Blue Eye, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, you know, question what they have to be worried about there, several <laughs> uh, young adult novels with LGBTQ characters like Adam Silvera's More Happy Than Not. And basically what they were going at, according to their own standard, is profanity, violence, sex scenes, or nudity. This is part of a larger movement, Chris. And I want to I talk about this from a political perspective because that's what I've spent most of my life doing from an organizing perspective. This is part of a growing trend around the country of parent groups that came up during the pandemic largely about COVID restrictions, but who have now been shape-shifting to accomplish other conservative goals. And a good example of this is a group that's mentioned in the article called Utah Parents United. They started about COVID fights, and now they're talking about all this kind of stuff about identity and gender within schools. There's a The most prominent of the groups out there is called Moms for Liberty, which was established in 2021. Most of these groups were established after 2020. Uh, they, Moms for Liberty alone has 250 chapters in 42 states. They went 272 for 500 uh, this past year in elections. So they have more than 50% win rate, which is really good in these elections. And they are a majority in over a dozen districts around the country. So this is a very powerful force sweeping the country. And you asked, where's the left-leaning version of this? I'm, I'm, I'm aware of some, Red Wine and Blue, for example. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a lot of these groups. I, w- I would say it is worth mentioning that we're not the left is not nearly as organized as the right on this kind of stuff. No, and I think part of the reason for that, this is, you know, to my centrist Democrat friends who like to waffle on the fence like good centrist Democrats like to do. Um, you were taken in. I am sorry, but when it, all this stuff came in LA and other places that the parents were so mad against the teachers union and so mad against the district around COVID restrictions, you were taken in by a shadow group of conservatives who knew that that was going to morph into other issues. It was already part of their plan. They started out with COVID. Then they went to critical race theory. Then they went to uh, gender and trans stuff. And now teachers are all groomers. And now it's SEL, social emotional learning. And it, you know it's just a communist plot to teach kids to hate their country and to be in their feelings too much. And it'll be another thing and another thing and another thing after that. Really, it's, again, let me say this conservatives, the Heritage Foundation, these groups, their sole goal in the world is to make you aggrieved about everybody, everybody else. Everybody's a problem. Trans people, uh, pe- gay people, uh, black people, immigrants, uh, you know, people who don't toe the line, the woke, the left, the, the media, this. You are so aggrieved all day long that I don't know, like somebody needs to start, maybe this is, you know, 
Yang and other folks thing to do. Someone needs to start a a, a, a Fred Rogers movement, like Mr. Rogers <laughs> movement, because after you've lived in the asshole movement long enough, I hope you would want to like somebody at some point and not use the power of banning books, the power of state law, the power of school district governance, the power of rulemaking to constantly be using it as a cudgel against people rather than for people. Yeah. Right. Do we need, do libraries need to take books out? No. And I do want to ask you a question about this, Robbie, to get your honest opinion, but I have been saying I'm about multiplication and addition. The conservative movement is about subtraction and division. That's the only way they win. Divide and conquer, divide and conquer, divide and conquer, subtraction, division, remove books from libraries. And I've been saying, no, libraries need more books, right? We need to add books. Mm -hmm. But where do you come down on the idea of, they're making language around some of these books are pornographic, for instance. Books like Genderqueer yeah. are pornographic. I have I have so many thoughts on this. One is I do want to defend my centrists out there that you hit earlier and just say- <laughs> Whoever says that. If we want to call it centrists, like the people who are critical of, you and I have gone 16 rounds on this and I definitely don't intend for us to do it here, but- I think there are some of us who are critical of extended closures, even, and I was supportive of the initial closures, but I think there are certain places we've talked about San Francisco before that went on too long. And I think you could have that position. This is like a cousin of the genetic fallacy, right? Like you can have that position while not like allying yourself or endorsing everything that other people who had that same position went on and did afterwards, right? Like if I was critical of San Francisco School Board and Ben Shapiro is critical of San Francisco School Board, I'm not Ben Shapiro, right? Like we have two different lenses to bring to that. So I wanna at least stake out that part of it. But on the larger point of banning books, I think I've told you this before, I was in the middle of a front page news book banning controversy in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was actually the left that came after me on that one. And it gets to my philosophy around this kind of stuff. To answer your question directly, I do think that mature books have a place in libraries. I think you can level them. I think that you can have parent opt in as the level of sensitive material goes up so that a kid can get a special library card that their parent is like, all right, sex, like, you know, if there's sex in this and swearing and all that, I think parents can opt their kids uh, to access books at higher and higher levels of sophistication. I think by the time you get to high school, I don't think that's necessary because high school students should be exposed to everything and they have the internet. So who are we kidding here? But I had the situation where I assigned a book in seventh grade called City of Thieves. I told the story, I think, a few episodes ago. And our local school board member who is liberal or professed to be liberal sent an email to the, the higher ups in the school system saying, shut down this school over a book. Uh, and that, you know, a whole chaos ensued. And, and we don't have to necessarily go into it now unless you want to, like where I had to fight back against that whole nonsense just because I was you know, assigning a book to seventh graders that involved like swearing and certain, you know, topics of sex, you know, sex and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it, it was hell. Honestly, it was like a, a months long thing I had to go through to defend our school. Well, this is where I'm going to go back and beat up on your centrist again. So here, here's the thing. <laughs> oh, that school board member that did that in my mind didn't do that because of that book. They did that because they hated the type of school that you were running. And they would have right. hated the type of school you were running no matter what. And if it wasn't about this book, it would have been about something else. So what they were doing- And, and it was always about something else. It was always about yeah, something there else. There was always a something else. So this yeah. is my point. My point is there's a, a level of being disingenuous when you take an issue that is a pain point or maybe a valid concern 
and you turn it into a political play. So the, 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 the schools being closed too long in L.A. and San Francisco was an issue that could have been handled many different ways. But turning it into a political, you know, well, we, this is our opportunity. We, we've hated the unions for years. So let's make this about the unions. Uh, this is our opportunity. We've hated this school board for years and we've hated their politics and they've hated us. So why don't we make the school closings? See, now you've taken the issue. I don't care whether you're left, right or center. You're being disingenuous when you do that. And that did happen in San Francisco and in L.A. with people that I happen to know and respect who are uh, centrist, who are very reform minded, but also consider themselves to be on the left. Kind of. They saw it as their moment to do more than make it about just the issue of the schools being closed too long or getting kids back in schools. They made it a political movement of sorts. And the right has done that with everything else too. Like the right is doing that with groomers. You know what? There is a grooming problem in American public schools. We covered it on this show a few shows back. There is a large scale kind of sexual abuse problems. It's one in 10 American public students that will be the victim of sexual misconduct by public school staff in their career, one in 10. So if you go out and count out the kids around you and you get to 10, uh, there's a good chance that one of those kids is in their lifetime going to be the victim of, of sexual uh, misconduct in their public school by staff. The problem with the way that the right is framing it is they're making it about people being gay when that's actually largely a heterosexual problem, right? They're not telling you that part. There is grooming going on, but it's heterosexual. So stop trying to make it about gay people and trans people and start actually looking the real data up and dealing with it. Anyways, I see you shaking your head. So Well, I, I don't we're not going to do the whole San Francisco thing again. Yeah. I'll just direct people. I did a, a whole episode on this uh, back in the day. It's a podcast called Regressives, which is on the Lost Debate feed. And I interviewed the school board chair, parents in the district, et cetera. People can go back and listen to that. Um, I have all sorts of opinions about that. But I do think there's one thing you've mentioned that make, made me laugh, actually. I was just thinking back on it. You said if it wasn't about the book, it would be about something else. The, the it, story is so interesting because it became about something else. So I get accused of teaching this book to kids who are seventh graders, by the way. And if you remember what seventh grade is like, sex is not surprising to seventh graders, by the way. So I'm teaching this book to them. And the school board member is like, all right, we're going to shut you down over this book. I respond saying, you know what? And, and you know, I'm a little bit of a nut. So I went through and I actually annotated the book, which is something we normally do for special education kids. But given that I anticipated this critique, I went in and I rewrote sections of the book that were like, like sensitive topics that were more adult and rewrote it for seventh graders, right? And then we photocopied it <laughs> and gave it to kids uh, and gave them PDFs of it. So then once they got that response, so then they're like moved on from the fact that I was teaching sensitive stuff. And then they accused me of violating copyrights. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and they had, they had like copyright groups calling me and all this kind of stuff. And it, and then that became the scandal because it was never about any of these things, right? Like as if like I'm committing some kind of offense. Like, first of all, we had one book for every kid. So it wasn't like we were stealing anybody's like money or anything mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. But it was like the idea that an educator taking the time out to rewrite passages to make a book accessible to seventh graders is where you're going to be spending your time as a school board member shows that it's not about anything other than your political agenda.
Well, I want to say this. If we want to be political people, we will always find a way to be political. If we want to share a society, if we want to share schools, if we want to be parts of communities, if we want to be something other than antisocial, we'll change the way that we approach these issues, right? Right now, we are being sold uh, antisocial behavior as, as the norm. Uh, when you're mad about something, tear everything down. When you are uh, you, you don't like a book choice, get the books burned. Uh, you don't like the, what teachers are teaching, freak out. Like, by all means, let's just freak out. You can't run an entire uh, country of 300 plus million people with that as the constant inclination. If there's no inclination towards being part of a, a member of a society in good standing, being a good citizen, being a good person, being a good voter, uh, passing the damn referendums for your schools, uh, when you have a problem going to the school board meetings and talking like a human being in the way that you would want your kids to talk. Yep. Not showing up, freaking out, passing out like it's a damn Pentecostal revival and freaking out to the point where cops have to pull you out. If that is the spirit that's being <laughs> unleashed, right? If that's being unleashed in you, you're following the wrong people. I do want to like correct one thing before we move on to the next story that I want to talk about. You called this a political problem, Ravi, but I also think that there's a cultural and historical kind of reference or frame to look at this through. You know, in 1984, the United Daughters of the Confederacy organized after it appeared as though the, the, the South had completely lost the narrative in the United States. They had completely lost not just the Civil War, but the narrative about the influential figures within their Confederacy movement. And they formed a whole movement called the Lost Cause Celebration to, number one, rewrite the textbooks of American schools, to erect Confederate monuments on school properties. And they did this because they wanted to subvert the, the growing progressiveness of the country, and they wanted kids to always remember the Confederate cause in a positive light. So they did take on the textbook industry. They took on schools, and it was mostly women. Uh, that's why they're called the Daughters of the Confederacy. And they used their position, their social position as white mothers and white moms to have influence over the school system to impact future generations. Moms for Liberty is not a political organization. They are a blip in the historical record of these type of groups emerging at different points in history during segregation and desegregation in the 1950s and 60s and further in fights in the 70s, the suburbanization in the 80s and the 90s that took place. And I would say... Also in New York and other places, liberals, you're not off the hook. In things like the opt-out movement, the anti-common core movement, the complete anti-reform, hands across America, parents across America thing, all of that has the same, it has the same topology to yep. it. So stop seeing these things as temporary political movements. They're important. They change us. They rewrite books. And we can't let that happen in 2023, right? That can't be something that we just keep suffering. Yeah. I think like, as I think about this story, I think a couple of things. One is if, if anybody listening out there knows any chapter leaders from Moms for Liberty, I would love to talk to one of them, get them on this pod. I would love to to, to have it. We're the lost debate after all. Not the lost cause. So I'm on the pod. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to I hear, hear from them. Uh, that's number one. Number two is... I think about where the left, because obviously I spent a lot of time in my in left wing politics. You know, when I run this company, it's different. But they need to. I agree with you that this is not just a political point. And also, when I say political, I don't mean it to mean temporary, right? Sometimes pol political movements are permanent, right? Mm -hmm. Like the NRA mm -hmm. has existed before I was born, and it will probably exist long after I die. 
And I think the the left needs to, and this is something I think you and I agree on, it needs to articulate a forward-looking vision for schools that animates people, that inspires people. And they need to get the vision right, and then they need to get the tactics right. And I think time is running out because the right is coalescing, coalescing around their vision. It may be a very basic vision. It may be a backward-looking vision. Uh, they may not be totally honest when they talk about things like free speech and parental rights, and they may be selective about all that kind of stuff. But when you, I suspect that when you interview these Moms for Liberty people, they know exactly what they're fighting for and fighting against. And I'm not sure, sure that's always true of the left. And so I think that the left needs to, to do some work. I wouldn't even say to catch up because that's not what it's about, but to, to really build the kind of infrastructure and vision that could counter this kind of thing. Well, there you go. The lost debate. You made a good invitation there. See, you're being a good citizen. Yeah. This is what I love about you, Ravi. You are a good citizen. <laughs> you're being a good citizen. You open, you, you try to mediate these things a little, even better than me as I'm saying things like we should be good people. And you know, like I have a lot to uh, <laughs> uh, to do better on. Anyways, let's transition to the next story. That was our what makes us mad segment. But it's funny because in our next segment, which is supposed to be our something that makes us think segment, there's something that makes me mad about something that, you know, in our think segment. Ditto. So, oh, ditto. ditto. Oh, good. Yeah, All right. Ditto. So cool. Yeah. So we are talking about this uh, article that's in the Atlantic from September 28th. It's called American... Family policy is holding schools back. And the kind of the, the tagline there is a child's ability to succeed in the classroom is powerfully influenced by their home environment. Giving parents the support that they need could be key to fixing American education. The author actually does a really good job of laying out in some pretty good detail the number of things that actually, first of all, let's just stop and and the author does a good job of laying out the fact that there's a problem in schools. Even before schools closed during the pandemic, 30% of graduating seniors failed to reach a basic level of competency in reading, and 40% failed to do so in math, according to national data. This is something that the author is laying out. Performance gaps across race and socioeconomic status in both subjects have persisted to some degree for decades, and teachers are among the most stressed out workers in America. And though their concerns about the educators leaving in droves haven't materialized, the number of new teachers coming online is is dwindling. So, so the author is like laying out a case for there's a problem, which I love, you know, because people on the left oftentimes say that there's only one problem. We don't have enough funding. They only have like uh, two two prescriptions for public schools, more money and less accountability. Mm -hmm. If you can do those two things, they just think that that is at the root. I mean, you're laughing, but that seriously is at the root of most leftist progressive education policy is only two things, more money, less accountability. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. I feel like it's the most succinct summary of the, the democratic platform on education. That's a hundred percent, you know, more money and, and uh, supports and all that stuff, which I support both of those things too, by the way, except for less accountability. I support, you know, accountability could look different, but here's the paragraph that is so maddening to me. I just want to read the paragraph. Let's see if it's you. the same paragraph. Let's see if it's we we picked the same paragraph because I literally pulled a paragraph out and I have like five sub bullets underneath with my <laughs> own responses in it and my notes here. All right, read your paragraph. So before I do, let me say this is the first maddening paragraph then because since you said that, this isn't the only one. There was, oh, yeah. a, there was a lot. Of I have one that I just put a big lol next to, yeah. which is not the same one that made me mad. All right, you go first. I'll go. So uh, the author says, over the past two decades, government officials. Yes, it's the same paragraph. <laughs> 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 oh, 
Oh, God. Well, that's interesting. Uh, So over the past two decades, government officials have made various attempts to improve the state of American education, ramping up standardized testing, expanding charter schools, and urging states to adopt uniform benchmarks for student achievement to no avail. I'm sorry, too little avail. Perhaps, understandably, these efforts have mostly fixated on what takes place within the halls of America's K-12 public schools, but less attention has been given to another profound influence of our education system, our nation's family policy. My reporting suggests that many of the elements fostering children's academic success have roots outside of the school, and that if America wants to help teachers, it will do a better job of supporting parents. Okay. So that, you know, quote, end quote uh, of this. So maybe do you want to start telling me what's maddening to you first or do, should I just like, because mine's quick and easy. Well, okay. Let me, let me, I'll give you a, a little taste of it. Yeah, go ahead. First of all, if you click these links, like she's making claims that ramping up standardized testing, expanding charter schools and adopting uniform benchmarks, she's making the claim that, that it had little avail, little, little results. And if you click on the links, it's like a Valerie Strauss opinion piece in the (laughs) Washington Post. It's like, there's just no data to back up what she's saying. And as we've covered on this podcast before, you pick any one of these things, for instance, expanding charter schools, Stanford has the, the credo arm, which both sides have agreed is the gold standard measuring charter school success shows that urban charter schools are having remarkable results for kids. They talk about ramping up standardized testing. And I click on that link and it's literally just an an overview of no child left behind. It's not. It's not making any claim whatsoever that whether sta- ramping up standardized tests has had good or bad results, or that we're even ramping them up in past years. We've actually been pulling back on standardized tests over the past few years, and it's also the question of who you're speaking to, right? Like, I, I, the, my big question I had in reading this article is, who are you speaking to? Because if it's a K twelve educator. They have very little to do with, you know, paid family leave and all these other things that I agree we need to do better in this country. Like what they need to do is focus on making sure that schools educate kids well, which this author strangely comes back to in the end in the final paragraph and agrees with and says, all right, like we can't ask school, we can't expect schools to do everything. But kind of the whole piece seems to be discounting the role of schools in improving kids' lives. It almost seems to be like this nihilistic argument that schools can't make much of a difference. I think you kind of just explain part of what bugs me about this so much is national family policy is very important. It's so important that it can stand on its own without needing to contrast it against other things. When we talk about education, the education of young people, the thing about the education of young people, it's on a continuum of many factors that we need to support policies to improve the lives of kids on inside schools and outside of schools. I love the Search Institute because they do a good job of this. They say that there's 40 assets that kids need to, to thrive and, and do very well in life. 20 of those assets are in schools and 20 of those assets are outside of schools. Right. And they're all research based. They're heavily research based or whatnot. My problem is. When you try to use sociological interventions in place of pedagogical interventions for things that are pedagogical problems. So the system of education has pedagogical problems, right? You fix those with pedagogical interventions. And and things that are school problems use school interventions, right? But the either-or nature of this the false binary of either we have to assess kids or we have to be good on family policy is it's a weird leftist kind of Jedi trick. 
I think used only yeah, can because- Can I give you a metaphor? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's a metaphor on this. Well, wait a Notice second now. My, Jedi trick is a metaphor, is it not? Just kidding. Well, let me give you another one. <laughs> metaphor go might ahead. be the wrong word, but notice what my Democratic and progressive friends don't do. They don't say, hey, uh, kids' medical conditions and life outcomes in terms of longevity and health have to do with way more than the quality of the healthcare they receive. Therefore, let's stop talking so much about the quality of the healthcare they receive and start talking about larger societal issues. You will never hear a progressive say that, mm -hmm. but they mm -hmm. talk about that as it relates to education, right? Oh, they downplay the effect of, uh, interventions in the education system and downplay, as this article does, the role of the K-12 system. And in many ways, what they're doing is they're dismissing actual real improvements that have happened over the past 20 years to the K-12 system and having this sort of relativism. Oh, nothing works. We need to focus on things outside of the K-12 system. That would be like saying, hey, we don't need to create better clinics for kids in the Deep South. We don't need to expand Medicaid. We don't need to come up with better ways to serve customers better in the healthcare system, regardless of what level of income they have, or that we don't need to track the rates of diabetes as it relates to poverty. Because she talks about no child left behind, right? Well, what did no child left behind do? No child left behind said, we're going to track outcomes. So imagine we're saying we're going to track the rates of diabetes, and we're going to track those outcomes as it relates to subgroups, like by race and income. We're going to disaggregate the data. Yeah. Now, Imagine if I was a progressive and I stood up and said, let's not track rates of diabetes because diabetes is only one metric and I need to talk about the whole child, right? And then let's not look at it by race and income. You'd be like, that's a conservative talking point. But somehow in the education system, we allow that. Well, it sounds to me like you're, you're just trying to shame and demoralize nurses and doctors, Ravi, when you say that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know right. that black women, yeah. black women statistically are dying more at childbirth for many reasons. But have you looked at the neighborhoods where they come from? Have you looked at the fact that maybe they have other things going on in their lives that would warrant them to die more at childbirth? I mean, I, I don't know why you have to demoralize good unionized uh, nurses the way that you're doing right well, now. Well, let me educate you, Chris. Let me read you another paragraph. This was my lol paragraph, okay? okay? And lol. you tell me why I lolled at this one. Ready? So, quote, Suzanne Langolis, who has spent the past 17 years teaching at a public high school in a wealthy part of Maine, has no doubt that the resources among her students' families make her job easier. She told me that she really sees the behavioral issues that she used to when she worked in a district with much higher levels of poverty. She finds it much easier to engage teens who aren't distracted by concerns about their family's health or employment. End quote. Newsflash, Chris. Mm -hmm. Kids from higher poverty experience more issues in schools. This was printed in the Atlantic as if it were some kind of like stroke of genius. Here's the thing, though, that was maddening about that paragraph to me that I read was that I agree with her on one side of the fence. I just think it's two different articles. I think you can write an entire article about the need for America to do better on family policy without making it a contrast to what we're doing in education. You know, to say that it has right. to be in contrast of testing, disaggregating data, charter schools, expanding educational opportunities or whatnot, that doesn't even have to be in the same article if you're trying to make an argument that we can do better on family policy. Because she has me right. 100% at, at family policy. And oh, by the way, this is where someone, if you are listening to this right now and you're shaking your head, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm down with you guys on this or whatever. And you're slightly from the right or you're one of these dreaded centrists, these lukewarm people that, you know, God oh spits you God. out. Um, 
you know, if you're one of those folks, centrist, I, stay with us so. on this pod. Yeah, I've got you. I've got you. <laughs> Ravi is your guy. This is where it cuts the other direction, though, which is the same thing that we're saying that she's doing to Ed policy. Ed policy people often do to family policy people, right? So there's a lot of people in the ed world who are all about the stats and the NCLB and the charter school expansion and all that stuff who are actually just so tone deaf on, on the larger kind of societal issues also, though. So, so it's almost like education is trying to live – education policy wonks are trying to live on an island that, that cuts them off for the rest of the other advocates that advocate for children, right? I do think there's a new generation, though. I hope so. I do think there's a new generation. I hope so. The old yeah. generation sucks on this issue. They suck on the issue. I've had people literally say to me, if you keep bringing up those other issues, we're not going to stick together long. And it's like right. all they want to talk about is the test score and the, 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 the voucher, the private school voucher or the charter school or whatnot. And they're so myopic in that belief that it makes them it makes them kind of like unsellable to the public. The public doesn't think that myopically about like th there's a reason this woman resonates who is writing this article. There's a reason this resonates with so many mothers and moms and parents across the country. They don't keep repeating this message because it doesn't work. They repeat it because it hits on all the heartstrings of people who know that children are much more than a charter school, much more than yeah. than their test score or whatnot. And, you know, my flip side to that is this is the, the benefit of being a middleman. I'm in the middle of both of these. Neither side should be giving up on the other side. Like, you can't tell me you can't, you're not going to, you're going to love kids and the whole child and whatnot, but you're not going to disaggregate the data that tells you that some of them are being treated really poorly. That doesn't make yep. any sense to me, right? How are you going to be a data-free progressive? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And honestly, like, I, I do believe charter schools, like, if we're painting with a broad brush, especially in cities, have been a remarkable tool to help children. But what offends me more is just this idea that they're going to downplay anything that works in K-12, right? Mm -hmm. And that, like, mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. basically, it's like a learned helplessness that mm -hmm. I see often mm -hmm. in a lot of these articles where if you're, it's demoralizing to educators and 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 it and it actually goes downstream to the kids. If we're constantly saying that if you're from a high poverty background or if you're from a certain area, you cannot experience upward mobility and turn your life around through the education system. And I think if you tell kids and educators this enough, they're going to believe you. And somehow, and this is what makes me a progressive, not um, a conservative, is I believe somebody once said to me that conservatives they overplay economic mobility in this country and that too many progressives uh, downplay it, right? Like I'm somewhere where I'm like, the the barriers are enormous for kids like my former students in North Nashville. They're so enormous. And and I think what separates me from a lot of my conservative friends is that I, I truly don't think they understand how big those barriers are. But then what gets, my, gets me angry at my progressive friends is they're often throwing out these arguments about learned helplessness and that we can't do anything in the K-12 system without any sense of just how destructive that idea can be for the children and educators trying to make a difference in those schools. So that's what makes me angry about this piece. So I mean, yeah. this is a double mad piece for me double double mad wow well you know i have something provocative to say about your last point there and i wonder i wonder what you would think about it. Let's do it i think that the progressives who think that way the learned helplessness thing or the fairly nihilistic or the you know you know the only thing that tests tell us is how educated the parents are 
Like it, to mm. me, the most racist thing that I have heard uh, in years is this thing, is this thing like, you know, poor black kids' brains aren't elastic and they can't learn because they're so awfulized and traumatized by everything or whatnot. And as a person who, you know, if you live in these communities and you play with some of the kids sometimes and you hang out with them or whatnot, you see problems and you also see kids like you see kids who actually can still they're not like sitting around just all day long being so kind of like like with the white imagination about the black child is just so interesting to me but anyways here's the provocative thing it's not because those teachers don't care and it's not because they want to be as racist as they actually are and that they're like bias picking the books that they read that just confirm their ideology that nothing can be done for these kids it's not that it's that they don't know how to do for the kids what needs to be done. So they need a compensatory logic around why they themselves, because they care so much and they're there mm -hmm. every day. And if they're, and they're bright and they're college educated. So if they're failing at what they do, there has to be a compensatory logic for them to grasp onto. And right. the logic is, well, it's just the poverty. It's just, yeah. it's the color, the culture, the poverty, the kids. And when you come along, with a charter school or another school that disproves that notion, they still have a problem. The problem still is, I don't know how to do it. So there must be something wrong with you too. You must be yeah. like a problem. So, so too. Now, if you're listening to this in your teacher, I could hear just even as it comes out of my mouth, how mean that can sound. I don't know what to do about that because I just feel like it is a thing where you care, but you can't do it. You don't have the skills. You don't have the training. You don't have the system. You're not in a system that has reordered itself completely around making sure that these kids do well. And this is a moment to just shout out great teachers out there. I went to IS-51 in Staten Island, which was a school that had a ton of problems, but the best, most committed educators I ever met were in that school. And what they all had in common was they didn't let anything stand in their way. They woke up every single day and they said, I have agency. And I'm going to inspire kids and I'm going to be really good at my craft. And those people exist out there. They probably listen, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably more likely to be that, right? Because if you made it this far, right? So this is the thing is like, I think sometimes people could think we're like anti-teacher because we are a little bit more skeptical of teachers unions than most, or we want accountability and all that. But part of it is I just want an environment where like the amazing teachers can thrive and those who shouldn't be in the profession find work elsewhere. Right. Yes. And I actually think the yeah. first part of the equation is so much more important than the second, because I think we, we focus so much on the pushing out the people who underperform. But what really suffers are the people who want to make a career out of this and want to be excellent at something, but don't get recognized for it because mediocrity is tolerated and results like we don't even believe in results. We don't believe in objective data. We don't believe that, you know, excellent teaching is something that could be measured. And if that's true, then how demoralizing is that for the people who are trying to make this a career? If you're trying to say to somebody, hey, I want you to be a, a rock star basketball player, but we can't measure what being great at basketball is and you know we're not even going to count wins and losses in the games right then you're gonna be like well i'm not sure i want to you know go into this profession you know i don't know what excellence really is going to be and there's not a spot for me in that i would say this and we're going to transition to one quick thing you know for the end of the show here but i think with maga type people they just really don't believe in science. So it's easier to argue with them because you just see the Dunning-Kruger effect actually taking place. And if you're a thinking person, you don't entertain it much. The problem with the, the educated left, the progressive left on these ideas, is they are in taking 
science that confirms their bias. They're taking in what I consider to be a new version of scientific racism. There are entire books that are written that help them believe that their compensatory logic is a good one. Like, you know, yeah, white these, fragility. Well, see, you're going to pick on white fragility. I don't, I wouldn't pick on that one, but I would say, you know, the books that are more aimed at getting them to believe that testing is bad. Assessments don't work. Um, the instruments are all faulty. Only they know what's true. And the reason that right. they can't be measured on anything is because the kids are poor. And it's just a scientific fact that the kids can't learn. And here are all the reasons why. And, you know, the whole Alfie Cohn stuff, you know, it's like it's abusive to make kids you know, from the hood have to achieve on these tests that actually don't tell us anything or whatnot. It's just, it's a very strong, potent, educated form of scientific racism that works with a more educated crowd. Whereas the MAGA stuff, you actually, you know, you can just suspend belief in a lot of ways. I mean, listen, when you have a person, again, I've said it on the show before, who's telling people literally that the California wildfires were started by Jewish ray beams, and there are people that will keep trading that as a thing. That's a whole different problem than the educated left mm -hmm. has, right? Yeah, it's not a both sides thing. I want to point that out. Like, I, I know that we're C3, so we, we have certain obligations like, I don't think that the problems are equally weighted on either side. Yeah, no, and this is a conservative liberal thing more than it is like a party thing. Like the parties are expressions of it. But anyways, if you are still here with us at the end of the show, do realize that we would love to hear from you. We have a voicemail and an email where you can either call us or you can write us. The voicemail, you can reach us at 321-213-9171. Please call us, leave a message, tell us how the show was, give us show ideas, correct us on anything that we got wrong because we take correction gleefully. If you want to write it because you don't want to call, you can send us an email at citizenstewardshow at lostdebate.com. This is a show that's proudly on the Lost Debate Network. Please go check out the other shows on the Lost Debate Network. It is a portfolio of influencers and speakers and ideas that actually, I think, go into my idea I had earlier about us just being good citizens, being able to participate pro-socially, pro-socially in these issues the way that they do in Lost Debate Network. We appreciate you all. We will see you at the, on the next episode of the Citizen Stewart Show, which will be next year. So enjoy whatever holiday you celebrate. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening. 